everyone. My name is Jade Kurian, and I'm president of Latiku. We are a video workflow and transfer platform used by journalists around the world. Today, we're kicking off Latiku Community, a new series of webinars focused on the issues and topics of concern to our clients who are working journalists, media professionals, and content creators. Joining me is Latiku CEO Paul Adrian, who, like myself, spent nearly 20 years as a working television journalist. Paul, I'm so glad we're doing this because, you know, there's so much information about COVID-19 out there, but there's not anything really catered to these essential workers who are not really recognized as essential workers, and that's the journalists. And not only are they not necessarily recognized as essential workers, but lately, over the last few years, they've been targeted by some people in our society and blamed for doing things that they're not doing, <laughs> blamed for having some kind of bias, when the reality is, you know, journalists are our fourth estate, our fourth pillar of a functioning democracy, and we depend on them to go out into the field, to put themselves in the line of fire sometimes, and to bring us back information that we can use to make good decisions, whether it's about politics or wearing a mask. Yeah, absolutely. And so today with Latiku Community, we're exploring the topic of COVID-19 and its long-term impact on journalists, both from a professional standpoint, as well as the impact on their own personal health. We are so grateful to have not only journalists who have survived COVID with us today, but national leaders on disease who are studying COVID and its impact on patients. Please use the Q&A or the chat to send us your questions for our panelists. I'd like to introduce our panelists now. Matthew Long Middleton is with America Amplified at KCUR in Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome, Matthew. Candy Rodriguez is a broadcast journalist with KXAN News in Austin with Nexstar Media Group. Thanks for joining us, Candy. Dr. Robert Kaner is Associate Attending Physician at the New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center and Principal Investigator of the National Institute of Health sponsored Pulmonary Fibrosis Clinical Research Network, one of just 11 in the US. Thank you for being here. Dr. Noah Greenspan is a board-certified clinical specialist in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy and rehabilitation and works with patients who are recovering from COVID, in particular, these long haulers that you'll hear more about later. He is the founder of the Pulmonary Wellness and Rehabilitation Center and creator of the COVID Rehabilitation and Recovery Bootcamp. Welcome, Dr. Greenspan. And Teresa Barnes, who is a passionate patient advocate and has spent the last 15 years advocating for health issues for the Coalition for Pulmonary Fibrosis and other organizations. She has recently launched Fluid IQ, an agency that advocates for patients and researchers in respiratory, respiratory medicine. Hey, Teresa. Before we dive into questions with our panelists, let's start with some perspective. Press Emblem has been tracking COVID fatalities among journalists since March 2020. At least 261 journalists in 43 countries have died from COVID-19 as of Monday of this week. 
and it's almost impossible to know how many journalists have fallen ill out of the 5.7 million cases here in the United States. That's an unbelievable number, Jay. What we do know is that journalists are essential frontline workers and that their job puts them at high risk of contracting COVID. And the longer the pandemic continues, the more we learn about the long-term health impacts of those who contract COVID. So looking on your screen, this flow chart shows you just how volatile the recovery from COVID can be. It is the result of a study of 143 adult patients in Italy who were hospitalized with COVID. Just 13% had fully recovered in 60 days of discharge from the hospital. Just 13% two months after they went to the hospital, after they got discharged from the hospital, had fully recovered. Of those who still had symptoms, 44% had worse quality of life, 43% reported still having difficulty breathing, 27% reported joint pain, and 22% reported chest pain. So this is a, a long-term illness. Once you get it, it yeah. just hangs on. It yeah. hangs on. And we are learning now that you don't have to have been hospitalized to have lingering symptoms. Another study published by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control just last month conducted a random sample of 300 adults who had tested positive for COVID. They were interviewed about their recovery. Two to three weeks after a positive diagnosis, about a third of them had not returned to full health. Of those who had not returned to their expected health, almost half, get this, half of them were under 50 years old. You know, early on in this crisis, we had this idea that it impacted the elderly, folks who were already sick. But young people still feel that way uh, if you look at the polling. And, and that might be a sign of, you know, a real danger. If folks don't take this yeah. seriously and get sick, it might be something that would stick with them for a long time. Those with lingering health effects most commonly reported fatigue, a lasting cough, and headaches. Some who contract COVID are sick for weeks or even months as you just heard from Paul. After their diagnosis, these patients called long haulers have formed online communities of support and even started their own data collection and research around symptoms and recovery. These are individuals who have reported good health and active lives prior to contracting this disease. One researcher reports tracking more than 90,000 long haulers in 100 countries with an average age of 38 years old. One side note here, the largest age demographic of working journalists in the US is under 35 years of age. A self-organized group of long haulers met just this week with the World Health Organization. In that meeting, the group presented data that showed the bulk of long haulers did not have a positive test result for the virus. So they didn't even test positive. This may be a function of when they contracted COVID, when testing was not widespread, but many have not tested positive for antibodies either. So again, mysteries. And this morning, the Wall Street Journal reported a study from St. Jude's Research Hospital that found that children can also experience disease symptoms. 
With that, I want to bring in our first guest, Matthew Long Middleton, who contracted COVID or what he thinks is COVID in March. He was profiled by the Washington Post as a long haul patient in June when he was still suffering with extreme fatigue and fever. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. First question, how are you feeling now? Uh, I'm really, really excited to report that I am feeling a lot, 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 lot better. Um, I'm at that, that weird stage where it's been so long, such a long journey that um, uh, I have to ask myself, like, well, is this an appropriate level of tiredness? Is this just life? And I feel like if I'm asking that question, then maybe I am, like, fully back to normal if I, if I can't remember what normal <laughs> felt like. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long journey, though, because I... Uh, I got sick March 11th was when I got like actively really, really sick. And it's only been in the last two, three weeks since that I have felt um, more back to my full self and been able to, to do things. Good, I'm so glad to hear that you're feeling better now. I'm sorry that you went through this, but I understand you also have not officially tested positive either for the virus or for the antibodies. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was really interesting. I learned, uh, <laughs> I had heard new things uh, in uh, just the presentation you guys just shared. Um, and that kind of reassuring to me because, yeah, when I got sick on uh, Wednesday, March 11th, um, you know, I initially called my physician, uh, my primary care physician that evening because I was like, this feels not right. This doesn't feel like any other kind of sickness I've had before. And I had just been traveling uh, for work, actually, for my job. Um, I had visited uh, three cities in five days uh, and gone to a conference with a bunch of other journalists at uh, Kettering Foundation, which had people from New York, Washington, Massachusetts. So, um, you know, I was suspicious. Uh, but you might recall at that time, uh, the uh, requirements to get tested were you would have to have been in China or been in contact with someone who had a positive confirmed case. So I was very... Um, pretty sure that I wouldn't even get a test, but I went in, came back negative for flu uh, in an urgent care place. And because I guess, I mean, I do wonder how much of this was just because uh, <laughs> I'm just a, a man who is complaining. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the nurse there called the public health department and, uh, you know, I had shared that I've been traveling and, you know, I was like, but I have not been to China, um, but somehow I got uh, approved to get a test. But that first test came back um, unsatisfactory sample. Um, so I, I didn't know what to do with that. Of course, like it was also very, very delayed. Um, you know, they said you'd have results in one to two days. It was over a week later that I got the unsatisfactory results back. Um, and uh, then they sent that same unsatisfactory result to a different lab. Uh, and, you know, then it came back negative. So that was very confusing at the time too. It's like, well, of course it came back negative. It was by definition an unsatisfactory sample. How does it, uh, or at least it, it didn't make sense to me at the time. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was still really, really sick. Uh, you know, uh, my experience of whatever it was that I did have, and I feel like it was COVID-19 because my symptoms, you know, while I didn't have, you know, uh, that kind of testing data to say definitively, right? Like yes or no. Um, you know, I was, had a profound cough, chest pain. The thing I never really developed uh, acutely was the shortness of breath or loss of taste and smell, but about a week, like I also lost appetite and about a week later I developed, uh, 
really serious diarrhea. I lost 12 pounds in two weeks, um, oh. you know, and, uh, and it was a very mercurial experience for me, like, uh, you know, hour to hour, um, it could change and be like, oh, I think I'm feeling better. And then I would get a lot worse. Uh, and then it could change like day to day, like, oh, okay, finally we're over this. And then the next day I feel like garbage. Um, but the first two weeks were really, really hard. And then, um, yeah, and then uh, it was then two, three more weeks of just like feeling pretty miserable and just being really, truly unable to do like any kind of work. Yeah. You know, it was just, you know, I could maybe muster up a little bit of strength, to do an hour or two of work here or there. Um, but the rest of the time, it was really challenging. Um, and so in the beginning of April, I got, you know, because I was still sick, called my primary care provider. I was like, I am still sick. And I think just to kind of shut me up, uh, they uh, said, well, go get another uh, COVID test. And that one also came back negative. Uh, and then in June, when I switched primary care providers, just because I felt like I wasn't getting fantastic care, um, you know, out of curiosity, she suggested getting uh, the antibody test. Uh, and this was the Roach test. Uh, and uh, that came back negative. But that was in June. And, you know, I've seen other reporting currently done that one, some of the antibody tests, while they may be very specific, there's questioning about like if they're testing for the correct antibodies and, you know, uh, and that the antibody response may be different in different people. So um, it's left me with, yeah, a lot of questions and it's very hard to like explain to people. Uh, yes, I was incredibly sick for a very long time in a way that to me feels indicative of COVID-19, um, uh, you know, and other people's reports of it, but to not to not have any like, you know, sheet of paper to say, this is real and this is my experience, uh, that, that's challenging. So Matthew, I, I'm wondering, I mean, I'm just counting months here, March, April, May, June, you know, now we're in August. Um, you say yeah. you're feeling a little bit better now? Yeah, uh, and, and that's only in the last like three weeks. I mean, essentially like, you know, like I, in an effort, I, I said this in, uh, you know, in another interview, um, which is like, you know, everything else in my life, had, you know, the is conditioned me to be like, when you want something, you try harder, right? Like if you want to run faster, you do more running. If you want to, uh, you know, like get a better test, you know, a te like test better on an exam, you do more studying, you do more reading. Um, but my experience of this was very counterproductive. The harder you try, the farther you fall. Wow. Um, because like, you know, I would do things like a Zoom meeting and that could just wipe me out. Like, you know, not not like, it's very hard to describe and if there's like an element of you like, you just have to trust me. Like, it doesn't feel like normal tiredness or fatigue. It's like, I can't not take a nap, <laughs> you know? Like I can't not just um, do this. And so, you know, eventually I would, I think like around June, I started to be able to do a little bit more work, like roughly about half days. Um, you know, I was, I was working from home in my new position at America Amplified. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's more collaboration with a lot of public radio stations across the United States. And so I've been able to do all my work remotely and that's been really helpful. Um, but it, it really wasn't until like, uh, just the last three weeks that I was able to do like a full day work into the night, you know, if I need to. Uh, you know, which I was accustomed to doing. Um, and I'm a little bit of a, 
you know, the way I take care of my mental and physical health is uh, through exercise. I bicycled across the United States in 2011, bicycled apart, across part of Japan in 2018, and I participate in sprint triathlons. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't do any exercise. It was, it was profound how bad exercise would make Sure. Would make I, me see, feel. I see that Candy is agreeing with <laughs> well, Matthew. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's just it. Like, uh, I, I don't know Candy's story, and I'm excited to hear it. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, I have no way of, you know, telling people, like, oh, yeah, I had COVID-19. I just have, you know, my suspicion and my own personal experience. And I'm not a medical professional. So, like, I, I won't be hurt if any of the physicians here yeah. show skepticism or anything like that. Um, because, yeah, I'm not a professional. But... You know, my experience of it felt very, very similar to other people who did have confirmed cases. Yeah. And um, well, it, it's just like a weird place to be at. That that's a perfect cue for Candy. Yeah, please. Um, and so Candy um, with uh, Kicksand News here in Austin, Texas. Um, I wonder if you could, you know, add to, you know, Matt's story. Tell us, you know, what happened to you, how you got it, and what you've dealt with over the past, you know, few weeks. Yeah, my story is, is a little bit different uh, because I was in denial. Uh, so uh, it was in June. Uh, I started to feel bad probably the end of the second uh, week of June into the early third week of June. And, you know, often a lot of us ask, oh, well, where could we get it? How can we get it, right? It's like, you can't really pinpoint. You think you have an idea. At that time, uh, at the beginning of June, um, well, let me backtrack. In, in May, you know, when all of this started, my job was great at the fact that they sent me home. They sent the reporters home and I was able to work from home. I'm still working from home for the most part. And so that was great. But then we obviously had protests and so that required all all hands on deck and so you needed to be there in person so you go from uh me myself being you know just sitting on my couch all day to being in a crowd of you know hundreds of people uh so that was a, a quick change but you know i can't really say that's where i got it you don't know because people are often you know saying well you could have gone to the grocery store and it could have been there and passing or something like that but um, I started feeling bad, like I said, the second, the end of the second week of June into the early third week of June. And the whole time I was in denial because I was like, no way, I don't have this. I've been taking precautions. I have hand sanitizer galore. I do everything I can. I, you know, if I did have to go to work at that point, we were trying to make a transition to come back into the office. And uh, I do remember they were like, oh, well, let's start with Candy because she's the morning reporter. So there's not that many people that are in there at 4 a.m. in the morning. So like, let's just try to bring Candy back. And I was like, sure, that's fine. We'll, we'll see how that works. And sure enough, I started to feel the very first thing that I felt was allergy-like symptoms. And at this point, we were going from like spring to, to really hot and humid summery June. So I thought, well, maybe it's uh, a, a change in the weather. And I thought, no way <laughs> that, you know, sometimes I, in the past, I've gotten a cold in June. So I was like, no, it's probably just that. And then shortness of breath came. But I thought, well, I haven't been riding my bike. I've been so busy. So maybe I've just gotten, you know, a little lazy. And maybe that's why my body's like, hey, we can't, we can't breathe. Um, and then after that, I got a sore throat for two, just two days. I woke up two mornings with a sore throat. 
And that was pretty much it. And at that point, I was feeling body aches. I did not have any sort of loss in taste or smell. Um, I had somewhat of a runny nose. Uh, I was having headaches, extreme fatigueness. Uh, like Matthew said, I totally agree with him. It felt like I couldn't go throughout my day without taking some sort of nap <laughs> or some sort of rest. And it got to the point to where my shortness of breath, I could be in bed, just lying there. And it just felt like I was winded for whatever reason. So my coworker, Alyssa Gord, she convinced me, she said, hey, you should get tested. At that time, our uh, local health agency, public health agency was allowing people to get tested because of the fact that they understood that a lot of folks had been in the protest. And this is just like right after the governor here in Texas started to kind of reopen. We had restaurants starting to reopen, businesses starting yeah. to reopen. So they were short on tests, but for a little while they did allow asymptomatic folks who had been at the protest to get tested. So when my coworker was like, you should get tested, you should get tested. I was like, fine, I'll get tested. And I thought, all right, that'll give me peace of mind and they'll let me know yeah. that I just need to start running again and that's why I'm having shortness of breath. So I got tested on June 20th. It took six days for me to get my test results. In that time, I was working. I was out and about. I even anchored the morning show uh, one weekend. Uh, again, you know, having masks, but at some point you had to take it off. Yeah. Um, and that's when I found out. I found out I was positive. I was sitting in the car with my parents because I was actually taking my dad to a dentist appointment. And I just oh felt gutted because oh, my parents okay. are elderly. So I, it, it, I really felt... It was like an overwhelming, uh, just overwhelming emotions because I felt like, man, I just exposed my parents and I had no idea. You know, obviously keeping our masks, but yeah, again, so, so I can yeah. imagine just yeah. feeling so guilty. Absolutely, and, and that really makes me me wonder. You know, Candy, um, because of the job you do, you and other journalists do, you really have a unique position, right? Because you're essential workers. You don't have a badge saying this, but you're on the front line. Um, you're exposing yourself to folks all the time. You're exposing your, you know, your family in this instance to, to what you have. And I'm wondering how this unique role that you have, you know, impacts how you interact with the community, with your sources, with your parents, and also how you're perceived, you know, once you've gone through this. It's very difficult um, at first. I, and I'll start with the latter part of your, your question there. Perceived at first, I did feel uh, somewhat uh, uncomfortable in the sense that I didn't want to make other people feel uncomfortable around me. Like my coworkers, they were all so nice and, and, and um, uh, supportive. Uh, but at the same time, like, you know, my, my boss and I had this conversation of like, you know, we'll, we'll send out an email and let people know, like, you've been cleared <laughs> by your doctor, you're good to go. But at the same time, I understand there might be a little bit of a stigma of folks like, oh, you had COVID, don't get around me. Uh, but for the most part, people were supportive. But I think within myself, I felt a little bit uncomfortable because I was like, I don't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable with my presence. Uh, but when it comes to my role as a journalist, I live as a reporter, especially as a field reporter, as a multimedia journalist, I live for being out in the community. Like that, I love that. And I love being able to interact with the community. So the fact that I'm now really stuck to a virtual setting 
it's a lot harder because it's harder to build those relationships because it's not like you're just out and about and you're like, Hey, what's going on with you? Like, let's exchange. You know, you're obviously seeking out people that are, you're setting this up. It's a scheduled thing. It's not just a coincidence that you found someone that you're like, Oh, they have a problem. Let me look into it. And you know, as, as a journalist who's on the field, like, you know, we have to take precautions, uh, not just, not just because our job require, requires it, but I think a lot of us, uh, we should and so sometimes like you said earlier we get attacked for all these little things yeah, sometimes some of my coworkers have um recently they've gotten told like oh take the mask off like you know we can talk more if you take you know so things like that and it makes you feel like you're in an uncomfortable position and yeah. so there's just a lot there and they think that sometimes you know i've heard from people that are oh you're just hyping this up like it's not all that and i'm like well I had it. So I think I know, but yeah, so there's a lot of elements there and especially the way we now move forward as, as journalists, uh, in this virtual setting. Thank you. It, Candy. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Candy and Matthew for both sharing your stories with us. It's so important. I think to share, even despite whatever stigma there may be out there, I think it's important for us to tell the truth and be out there. For the audience, please use the Q&A or the chat to send your questions for our panelists. Now let's bring in our medical experts, Dr. Kaner. I think there's so much mystery around this condition, disease. Can we classify it as a respiratory disease like flu, or does it impact multiple systems as we're seeing? It likely does. What are you seeing in terms of long-term health impact and what are your answers to those questions i know there are multiple questions there but i wonder if you could put it all together for me well the short answer is yes to both um so it clearly is a respiratory illness um, i know from my own personal experience i was sick twice um, with a mild illness and i couldn't get tested uh, at the time that i was sick but subsequently my antibodies were positive so i'm very familiar with the acute symptoms. And just to validate what Matthew was explaining, um, Matthew, you weren't imagining that fatigue. That's a real symptom that I hear all the time from people who have suffered from COVID infection. So um, the multi-system part of this is really complicated. The lung disease part of this is really complicated. Um, we are, um, in the final stages of putting together uh, a registry to and it, and it involved multiple institutions um, to look at the um, incidence of the natural history of interstitial lung disease. So that's uh, inflammation and scarring and the gas exchanging part of your lung in people who've actually had respiratory failure from COVID and survived it. So we're going to be addressing that aspect of it. But there are multiple aspects of the, the respiratory illness, including people who have had activation of asthma, so they've, they've developed airways disease. Um, there are different patterns of parenchymal lung abnormalities. Um, without going into a lot of technical jargon, there are different patterns like organizing pneumonia that um, would be unusual um, just in the, in the general setting. And we're seeing those patterns very frequently. So we're only beginning to sort out all the different lung manifestations. Um, 
but it is a multi-organ system illness. So um, Matthew experienced diarrhea. We know that um, COVID can infect um, cells in the intestine and cause intestinal symptoms. We now know that um, COVID can infect the heart and cause um, myocardial dysfunction. So essentially heart failure. So when people um, have symptoms of shortness of breath, we're worried that it's affected their lungs. We're worried that it's affected their heart. Uh, we're worried that it's affected um, their upper airway. And um, the fatigue factor is, is very difficult to, to pinpoint in terms of the, um, the etiology. So we know that in COVID, um, many people have very elevated inflammatory biomarkers in their blood. And we know that those persist for a long period of time, even after people have recovered from the acute infection. And whether those um, are a marker for the fatigue or the fatigue is a manifestation of um, some other issue that we haven't uncovered yet, um, at this point, we, we don't know. So a lot of the answers to your questions are only going to become apparent um, as time goes on and as more, uh, more study is um, and more focus is applied to unraveling these issues, which are which are very complex from the medical standpoint. Uh, Dr. Kaner, before we go to Dr. Mm -hmm. Greenspan, there's a follow-up question, and um, Candy and Matthew both did relatively well, but there are so many people who end up hospitalized. Do we know what's the difference? We, we really don't. I mean, we know some of the risk factors for um, developing severe COVID. So obesity is one, hypertension is another, current smoking is another, and age is another. So the major risk factors we understand, but there's obviously tremendous variability from one individual to another. And um, that all remains to be sorted out. Um, there's there's probably biologic variability in the susceptibility to the infection. And there's complex reasons why that may happen. It may have to do with um, the level of viral receptors on the cell surface and, and respiratory epithelial cells. Um, it may have to do with the immune response to a viral infection. And it may have to do with the ability to shut off the immune response after the virus has been cleared. So there are many different uh, and then there are genetic factors that undoubtedly play a role in all of those things. And we're only starting to unravel um, that uh, complex series of interacting um, factors. Not an exact science just yet. No. Yeah. So Dr. Greenspan, we'd like to bring you into this conversation. You're working with patients who are uh, known as the long haulers. And it sounds like we might have uh, one or more long haulers here with us today. What is their treatment and what's the prognosis for them going forward? So, uh, great question. Um, you know, as Dr. Keener said, unravel is a beautiful word for this because it's like I kind of, um, I liken this to like when your kid comes to you with his fishing pole and it's like 50 foot of line kind of tangled into one and you sort of have to take it apart piece by piece by piece. And Matthew also really hit the nail on the head when he said, you know, you can't overpower this. Like COVID is not something you're going to muscle your way through. And in fact, with so many of our patients, as Matthew said, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's how do we sort of reset this system 
and quiet this system, quiet the inflammation, quiet the sympathetic nervous system. So we see patients who, of course, you know, our, our specialty is cardiovascular disease and pulmonary rehab, um, but this is not like a, a cardiac rehab. It's not like a pulmonary rehab. It's cardiac rehab superimposed on pulmonary rehab, superimposed on neuro rehab, superimposed on everything else. And then we have dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, which is like its whole other sort of, um, you know, animal. And so first and foremost, we want to make sure that our patients are not going to be in danger. So we want to make sure that they've been worked up effectively, that their heart has been worked up, and we're not going to wind up with a surprise there. We want to make sure that their neurologic system has been worked up effectively and completely, and then also that their respiratory system has been worked up. When people report shortness of breath from COVID, it's not the same shortness of breath that we're seeing with people with pulmonary fibrosis or COPD. It's very different. And a lot of times the testing comes back normal. And that's what makes it confusing. Same with the heart symptoms. So people report chest pain, but it's not the chest pain that we see in coronary insufficiency. It's something completely different. So it's like, I have my idea of how I work up a patient pre-COVID and post-COVID, it's a whole other ball game. But it, the key is to take very, very baby steps. Um, and there are people who like to say we could do one minute of exercise, two minutes of exercise, three minutes of exercise. But if you do that three minutes and 15 seconds, well, guess what? It's like you flooded your engine. And I've heard people say, well, you know what? Now I'm in bed for three weeks after that. Um, and it's really finding that super fine line. We had a boot camp that we developed two years ago for people with cardiovascular disease, with pulmonary disease, um, with complex medical conditions whose average age was 80 plus. Um, and we found that for the majority of long haulers, that program was too intense. So we went back into boot camp, and instead of starting boot camp at four minutes of exercise, we went back and broke it up into one minute increments. Um, and you know, it, it's like it's not even. Sometimes people will feel good during the exercise, and they'll feel good later that day, but then the next day they're shocked. So this is really uh, uh, an an observational treatment. It's a throw the stone, let the pool ripple. If everything is good, throw that same stone again. If everything's good, throw that same stone one more time, just for good measure. And go easy, you know, take it easy. Um, we're trying to do no harm. We're trying to make sure that we're not, um, we're not inflaming that whole system. And it, it almost seems like, you know, like you have the neurosystem, the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system, and it's like a lattice. And like, if you inflame something over here, well, guess what? It's like a wildfire. Um, so it's really about teaching people how to take it easy. And Matt, you said, you know, if you have a Zoom meeting, like what we're coming to understand or really believe is that it doesn't matter if it's physical or intellectual or emotional, you have like this budget. And if you use 90% of that budget on the intellectual, um, then guess what? You don't have much for the physical. And if you use 99% of it on the physical, same. Um, I had a patient this morning who I evaluated, and he said, what do you do in your off time? Reading, on the computer, watching TV. So, well, you know what? That sounds crazy, but reading could, could be too stimulating. There's only so much energy to go around. And it, it's really a budget. And you know, I see it like that. It's, and you spend, you got to spend it wisely. And for a lot of people, it's like, wait a second, you, some of the exercise sessions start with, this may feel like you're not doing anything. Yeah. And that means that you're doing it right.
And you know what I know about every journalist that I've ever worked with? <laughs> that they don't know how to go less than 100 miles per hour. Yeah, yeah. So this is really hard for this audience. Well, I think with that in mind, you know, at this point, it might be good to take a question from our, our attendees. And this comes from Melissa Gord. It's in the Q&A right now. Mm -hmm. But I think this is maybe one of the most relevant questions for this um, conversation. And what she asked is, you know, what do you think, uh, and maybe Dr. Greenspan, you could tackle this first, what do you think employers should be doing to both protect journalists from contracting um, and spreading COVID and to support those who have contracted it as they recover? Great. I mean, I think part of the issue is that everybody's trying to figure out their own individual response to it and their own individual responsibility because we don't see sort of this national guidance, right? Um, so first and foremost, prevention is key. And I can tell by this mild hint that I'm seeing on, the, on I'm getting a slight hint on the screen that you wanna talk about masks. Um, so you know what, we, um, so we have this concept called universal precautions in, and, and when it comes to universal precautions, what that means is that we assume that everybody's positive and we act accordingly, right? We wanna kind of figure out, look at that guy over there. He looks like he probably has COVID. Look at that girl. She looks like the type to have COVID. It doesn't work that way, okay? And we have to not think about what are we gonna do if we get into a jam. We have to assume that we are gonna get into a jam and protect against it. So if we look at these things here, uh, we know that COVID enters the body in, you know, through the mucous membrane, so it's gonna enter through the nose, the mouth, and the eyes. So you can essentially have COVID in your hands and you know, you're good as long as you don't bring it into your body. So masking is crucial, okay? Absolutely first and foremost. So the masks that come into my you know, my daily existence used to be this mask, which is a surgical mask, because I didn't have access, um, believe it or not, to enough N95s or even KN95s. Luckily, I was able to get some KN95s, and I basically, this is my everyday existence. Um, and I wear it anytime I have even a potential um, of coming in contact with it. And, you know, I think people have to delineate between the idea of a probable exposure and a possible exposure because we don't know what's probable, okay? If you have the potential to, or really a potential exposure. So what I worry about most, I go to pick up my car from the garage, okay? So I will wear this mask to the garage. You have a, a, a garage attendant who, um, you know, is in and out of tons of people's cars. We don't know who's been in those cars. Those are potential exposures. So for me, I'm gonna wear this I'm going to wipe everything down when I go in. Um, and if I'm going to see a patient, um, then for sure I'm going to be wearing an N95 or a KN95, and I'm going to wear a face shield. Because, you know, this mask, and it also, it's not just what you wear, it's how you wear it, right? So if you wear this, it's only as clean as it's going, as you've had it. So I take it out of the pack. Anything that you touch it, and a good way to think of it is if you had like red paint on your hand, so if I get red paint anywhere around here, anything that has red paint on it is no longer protected. So, you know, if I'm gonna see a patient, I'm gonna wear this, I'm gonna wear this without the hat. But with this, my head is covered. If I put my chin down like this, I've covered my eyes, my nose, my mouth. Um, 
And as journalists who are going to be in the scene and really around a lot of people, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the just horrific question of being asked to take your mask off. Uh, it, it's just, you know, I think that you have to make decisions that are best for yourself and best for your families. Um, I live right near a whole bunch of hospitals. When I, when I see these people, you know, these real, you know, the word hero is thrown around so easily in our society. But when I see people who are leaving their families every day, um, walking to the hospital to take care of strangers, putting their own lives and their family's health at risk, um, how could you not protect the population? And how could you not realize that, you know, um, we have a responsibility. So um, we closed the pulmonary wellness center on March 10th and we haven't reopened because okay. our patients are the oldest and sickest in New York City. And I can't with a clear conscience ask somebody to leave their home, get on a bus, sure. get in an Uber, yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. Thank you, Noah. I wanna turn now to Teresa. Teresa, um, you started as a television journalist and now you're a patient advocate. Um, when you listen to this, I would love to hear your reaction about how journalists should be protecting themselves or how their employers should be reacting in terms of COVID. Well, yeah, first, um, you know, this is, it's definitely a different time in our world, but reporters are exposed to things every day many of those you're just never aware of. And I, I've had this sort of eye-opening experience, uh, not just during COVID, but even before that, um, because over the last um, you know, 15 years or so, I've been working with top researchers in respiratory disease, like Dr. Kaner, like Dr. Greenspan, and actually, in fact, those researchers as well, but many others from around the world. And what I've come to realize is that every single day um, in, especially in a reporter's, a reporter's life, they come into contact with many things that could potentially be dangerous for them. And I think a lot of times as a reporter, we know where, when we're in a difficult environment, but the adrenaline's running, you're getting the story, you're getting reaction. It's part of the, it's why you became a reporter but it's also what puts you at risk. So I think the COVID environment has just elevated uh, our awareness of our environment. I don't think we're gonna go back completely to not thinking about the environment again. And, and I mean our immediate environment as well as the actual environment. So, you know, some of the things that come to mind for me are think about as a reporter, how many fires did you cover? How many explosions? How many environmental disasters? How many chemical issues? How many buildings that were not in very good condition and you interviewed people there? You know, what about hospitals? You know, the doctors and the staff are, you know, they're covered, but are you? So, you know, the things that I think we need to think about is, you know, does a reporter need a toolkit, a physical kit? to have with them going to particular types of stories or being prepared for just any kind of incident that they could be exposed to that they don't know right this moment, but in 10 minutes, they might get a call to go cover something. So I think, you know, it's heightened awareness for sure. 
but the respiratory community and Dr. Kaner's patients and, and Dr. Greenspan's patients and the patients that I've worked with over the years, they already, the ones that are living with the disease or any lung disease for that matter, yeah. they're heightened already. So they're reacting to this environment just like we all are. But I think the opportunity here is that, okay, now we know that there's COVID and that there probably are going to be other pandemics or illnesses coming behind it. So how can we all be prepared? And, you know, over the last five months, I mean, I've worked in patient advocacy. I work on Capitol Hill. I work with researchers to try to move science forward in respiratory disease. But I was, you know, involved in a, in a group earlier this year and still am, uh, a company called Fluid IQ. And we develop a, a small handheld ventilator and it's because people are thinking differently. We're all, you know, we're, we're, I'm working with engineers. I never worked with engineers before, but they're working with doctors to try to solve a problem that we didn't know about five months ago. So I think, you know, this is an opportunity for journalists to do their jobs not only better as far as good being writers, producers, you know, really good reporters, but being really good at protecting themselves in the environment they're in sure, sure. And, and being aware of what's around them all the time. And Can I add something to that? I'm sorry. Sure, mm -hmm. go ahead. You know, Teresa, you made a great point. Um, you know, I'm thankful to say that like in our community of like pulmonary fibrosis patients and pulmonary hypertension and COPD patients, we have not lost one single patient from our group to COVID in my group. Um, and you know, it's because we've been teaching people for years um, the same things that prevent COVID are the exact same things that prevent the common cold, the flu, pneumonia. And these people stayed home. They took it seriously. So when we talk long haulers, my average patient is in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. Occasionally someone in their 60s sneaks in. I've seen 104 long haulers in private consultation. I haven't seen one patient in their 70s, 80s, or 90s. So a follow-up that I have for all of you, including Dr. Kaner, is if you were to advise employers on how to protect uh, these people who are going out there and doing this essential work, who are not actually medical workers, what would you tell them? Like, give me a top three. I know that you're all proponents of masks, but beyond that. Well, I think the, the risk of a situation um, depends on several factors. So we know um, from what we've learned in the last few months that indoors is a much greater risk than outdoors. So I think that you need to factor in the, the risk as well as think about what protective equipment is appropriate. Um, so indoors, I think if you really wanna maximize the protection, the N95 mask is really the standard. That's what we use in the hospital when we have to protect ourselves from people who we know are infected. And um, eye protection does add uh, an additional um, layer of uh, protection on top of the mask, but the mask is really the key and the N95 is really the best mask uh, that we have right now. So um, for indoor potential exposures, I think that that's the highest level of protection you would need. Outdoor exposures are a little bit harder to judge. So if you were in a situation like Candy, where you're in a crowd of hundreds of people who were not 
um, respecting social distancing and uh, maybe it was a chaotic situation, that's a situation where I personally would wear an N95 mask as well because you don't really know who you're being exposed to. You could come into very close contact with people. Um, if it's a more controlled situation where you're outdoors and people are respecting social distancing, I think the risk is a lot lower. And I think wearing a surgical mask in that setting is probably perfectly adequate. So something you said, Teresa, that just really struck home with me was you took it beyond COVID and you took it to all the other things that Matthew or Candy might find themselves doing tomorrow. Um, and I spent 20 years as a journalist and covered many fires and chemical spills and explosions. <laughs> and I don't think I ever wore a mask, but I also don't think that in 20 years I ever had, you know, an employer say to me, you know, here's a toolkit, here's what That's we do, you know, when we go cover things that might harm your respiratory system or other systems. Um, Candy, Matthew, I'm wondering how you're reacting to that statement and whether, and I don't want to put you on the spot with your current employers, but I'm wondering in your careers, how often folks, you know, um, in your industry, including those who are your supervisors have talked to you about getting ready to go cover something. Uh, yeah, no, I, Teresa brought a good point. I, I, you know, she's right. I never thought about the fact that, you know, I need a toolkit. Like now I need, you know, certain things to go out with. And the fact that she, like, you know, she mentioned obviously the fires. How many times have we been there for hours doing live shots and just taking on all that smoke or, you know, a chemical explosion. There was one in Lake Charles today at a chemical plant. You're out there covering that. So I just never thought about the toolkit. And it's not something that I think as in the newsroom, we probably think about because it's always about go, go, go. You need to get there. Like, I don't think necessarily that we're thinking, oh, do you have a mask? We, as a newsroom, I, I often hear from our managers like, hey, just be safe, right? So we're talking about like physically safe, but I think we don't ever go beyond that point because that has never really been something that I guess we've thought of. You know, we've always thought about like, don't harm yourself, like bodily injury in this, in this sort of way, but that you're right, Teresa, that's like a long-term effect that can later develop. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I mean, think about, look at the images of, and many reporters that are watching this have covered Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, reporters that go there, they don't go in normal clothing. They wear vests, they have helmets on, they have gear that's meant to protect them just like the soldiers. And so I think we have to think of journalists as the soldiers in covering news and they need to have the equipment or the you know ability to know what to do and i think actually you know it's probably a that Latiku and doctors and groups of us could get together and kind of find solutions to help solve that for you and so that it, you don't have to think about it you just have to know what to gather to go to a particular type of scene and i think you know i think it, it really it really makes us realize that, you know, COVID is, is a horrible situation and a lot of people are getting ill and we need to protect ourselves from that. But we also need to learn from the situation and, and be better because we know that reporters are exposed to things all the time that they probably don't know about. Um, 
And I think that, you know, you, you have right here some of the, you know, two of the top respiratory experts in the world with Dr. Greatspan and Dr. Kaner, and there are many others as well that we work very closely with. So I think, you know, why not bring those experts together, figure out a way to make you safer um, in these environments. And also, I, I look at all of the journalists that are probably uh, sick with the virus, whether they know it or not, and how do we stay in touch with you? How do we know in a year how you're doing and, and what kinds of issues you might still be having? And even outside of a year, Dr. Kaner talked about the registry that they're doing in New York, um, looking at COVID survivors. Um, just people that think they have been exposed or people that um, have been exposed and never got a, com a confirmation that they positively. And, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind is, you know, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital has a survivorship group. They look at patients 20 years after they were treated for cancer to find out what's going on with them. And I think that might be something that Dr. Kaner and other researchers are going to consider as we move forward, ways that we can track um, reporters and other subsets of people that are exposed to COVID over the next, you know, who knows, maybe many years. Um, and then also, you know, this brings sort of the light on respiratory in general. You know, in the respiratory community, we don't have a lot of treatments for any respiratory problem, much less COVID. And part of the reason we don't is there's never been a really nationwide, worldwide call to action to the government to say, look, yeah, I understand people are dying with lung failure. Why can't you fix that? So maybe we need to say, look, we wanna see more research being done in respiratory medicine. We wanna see more therapies being um, reviewed and discovered over time so that when another pandemic comes and we, we, we're pretty confident another one will, so that we're better prepared at that time than we are today. So Matt and- Absolutely, absolutely. I'd like to underscore um, Teresa's last point. So traditionally, um, given its impact on morbidity and mortality, lung disease in general has been underfunded in terms of um, research resources. So Teresa's making a really important point. And I think that COVID has changed the entire landscape, right, in every which way. Because even as an employer, and, and we want to talk about these great media companies out there that are supporting the good work. This is something they weren't used to, right? So this is going to dictate a lot of changes for them and how they take care of their people. And I have to say, I will applaud all the, the, the media companies that I've been working with because they took a very firm stand, like you, everyone's going home, no one's, you know, going to get infected on my watch kind of thing, you know, everybody go home, you know, we're going to edit at home, we're going to shoot out in the field, and then you're going to send it in. So I will applaud all the media companies for that. And Candy, for you and for Matthew and what Teresa said, absolutely, there are going to be big changes, right? And what Teresa proposed is a great idea that I think we could all maybe run with. So, so I'm wondering, and I know we have to wrap soon. Yeah. And this has been such a good conversation, but I'm wondering if, since we have, as you pointed out, some of the leading experts in the world, um, if they can give a, a going away gift to our reporters, because reporters always yeah. looking for that next story. Yeah. 
And so I'm wondering, Dr. Greenspan, Dr. Kaner, and Teresa, is there something that's not being covered that you wish journalists would pick up right now and go to a story after this webinar? Great question. If you're, if you're talking to me, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, with, with COVID, you know, I've, been, I've spent, the reason I left journalism is to focus on a deadly lung disease that my dad and his siblings all died of and that my risk is high for. And it's a disease that uh, Dr. Kaner and Dr. Greenspan work on as well. And it's, it's called pulmonary fibrosis, but it's one of many fibrotic diseases that affect people around the world. 45% of people in the developed world die of those conditions. And if we could solve that, the fibrotic response, which is what's happening in COVID and in, in the people who are, who are going into respiratory failure, they're dying because, and not only dying, people are surviving with, with probably long-term lingering fibrotic issues in their lungs that cannot be resolved. There's really nothing we can do to reverse that damage and to make it go away. It's just not possible right now. So fibrosis is the number one killer in the world that's not being talked about. You know, it's, it's like a category like cancer kills so many people, thousands of diseases that make up the fibrotic area. But man, I'd love to see you know, every journalist who's watching this say, how the heck didn't we know about this? And, and what are we going to do about it? And the guys on this, on this uh, webinar, they know about this. So let's change the world. Let's, let's use COVID as a learning way to, to save lives. Not only the people that you're covering, but reporters' lives. Dr. Greenspan, how about you? So if I were going to give one message, um, the quality that I admire most in others and that I would strive for myself is authenticity. Um, I would say be true to yourselves and be true to your families. And what I mean by that is protect yourself physically and health-wise and tell the truth. Um, and, you know, your job is your job. It's not who you are. Uh, you need to be alive to do your job and you need to be healthy to do your job. So protect yourself. And if somebody's asking you to, um, to do something that you know in your heart isn't right, you know, you got you to... Gotta, be true to yourself and tell the truth. That's my takeaway. Thank you. Dr. Kaner, any final thoughts? What you well, want I, I think um, one of the slides that you showed early in the program was about the persistence of symptoms and people who have COVID infections. And I don't think that's been uh, widely appreciated. And I think that that's something that we really need to pay a lot more attention to um, because you've heard some very compelling stories um, from Matthew and Candy about how their lives were affected and they're young and uh, I'm assuming relatively healthy prior to this. And it's uh, uh, the, the, the total impact of the disease in terms of the long-term um, ability of people to work and to function um, and to feel um, normal uh, has really been impacted. And I think more emphasis needs to be put on that particular aspect of the consequences of the disease. Thank you. And how about Candy? What would you like to leave people with um, after joining this webinar in terms of COVID and how you've had to deal with it? Yeah, I would just like people to know that obviously this is serious. Don't take it just like, as you mentioned, uh, that just because you're young, you know, it doesn't, yeah. I mean that you're not going to get it right initially we thought it was a uh, more of a uh, senior citizen uh, 
disease for whatever reason, virus. So no, I think everyone should take it seriously because there's a lot of things, uh, and I'll say this very quickly, that we went through, uh, like you mentioned about the uh, budget, Dr. Greenspan, uh, for uh, something that I forgot to mention is that when I went through those two weeks of just going through COVID, I had uh, memory fogness and I would forget things in the middle of the day. So yeah, it's, it's a very serious serious issue. So I want people to take it seriously. Thank you, Candy. How about you, Matthew? Final thoughts? Yeah, um, just to build on what everyone has been sharing, uh, is that like, yeah, don't, you know, if, when it comes to issues of employment, yeah, like, if you do not feel safe at your place of work, uh, you need to address that. Um, and I think if you are in a position of responsibility or power at as one of those managers, you know, that you had to think very seriously about that, we need flexibility, both for, be, as the, all the physicians have pointed out and everybody here that like, you know, this isn't like a normal flu for some people. Some people will bounce back in just a few days, but some of the people you work with, they may be impacted for months and months. And so when you're thinking about employment, when you're thinking about deploying resources, um, you know, just be very mindful that when someone tells you, I cannot give you any more, and you've known them to like be a really great worker, you know, trust them. And uh, it's going to put, it can potentially put strains on us as a, as an institution, as like journalists more broadly, um, you know, in terms of how, how we deploy our resources and what we're able to cover. So, you know, be thinking about those things if they haven't already impacted you. Um, Cause it's, it could be, you know, a very challenging time. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. I mean, this is for Candy and Matthew. I mean, it is a difficult thing to talk about and share. So thank you, especially to you for sharing. Um, to Dr. Greenspan, Dr. Kaner, and Teresa Barnes, Tosi, thank you so much for being here and educating us. Uh, and as employers, we also had to like rethink things, Absolutely. right, Paul? It's so, been lonely here. Yeah. It's been, it's been lovely at HQ. We want our people back. So we're hoping this will be uh, over soon. So that comes to, you know, brings us to the close of our webinar. Just again, our gratefulness to the entire panel. And thanks to my co-host, Paul Adrian, Latica CEO, for joining us. And if you want to see more of these types of community discussions, we'd love for you to drop us a note at support at and we'll take your ideas and maybe run with it. Thanks for joining us, everyone.